Hey everybody, welcome to Secure the Bag, a podcast where we talk personal finance, investing, and bettering yourself. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I'm joined by amazing guests from all walks of life who share their in-depth personal stories. I hope these stories make these topics more approachable, teaches you frameworks on how to get started, and gives you a sneak peek into future trends. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secure the Bag, the podcast whose mission is to demystify all things personal finance and investing through our amazing guest stories. And as always, today, I am honored by um, an amazing guest. Today, I have Alejandro uh, Navia on. Alejandro, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I know that there's so so many things I kind of want to get into talking today. Uh, why don't we start here? I know you tweeted about um, your story about getting out of $100,000 of debt in 18 months. Um, we've also talked a little bit pre-recording about, you know, your, you know, your story of being, uh, you know, the American dream uh, cu- coming and immigrating from Colombia uh, to the U.S. So we'd love to kind of, uh, you know, dive deeper into, into those two and kind of how they intersect. Yeah, thanks so much. And I really appreciate you being here. And I think that's a really important topic because so many times we see a lot of people on social media that kind of like are rocking it or doing the things that we want to do. But there's always an element of their lives that is really somewhat not perfect. They're not beautiful or they're struggling with it, right? It's like that uh, Plato quote, it's like be kind to anyone because they're always struggling with something. They have an issue that we know nothing about. Um, so just for context, like I... I came to the United States as an immigrant in 1997. I was eight years old. I really didn't, uh, one day I was in Colombia, the next day I was in the the United States from what I can remember. And my parents came here and really hustled uh, to give us a better life. And obviously we we were well off in terms of middle class in Colombia, but once we came here, things changed and navigate, right? You gotta start from the bottom. And, you know, I still remember very much the conversations of like my parents having to choose between food on the table or gas in the car, you know, making sure that, that that's rationalized. And we lived in a two bedroom, two bath apartment, five of us. So my brother and my sister, we all shared an apartment down in Aventura here in Miami. And, you know, that, that ingrained some big lessons for me as in terms of new beginnings and really being able to persevere and, and be resilient. Um, obviously it didn't come without its without its taxation on it but like the the language barrier was really something that was challenging for me also not being able to communicate my needs in the proper language was also something very difficult and so i think that 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 created some form of people pleasing that as an adult or I grew up in um in terms of acceptance and being being accepted kind of didn't work out and you know, when you have parents who are hustling and making sure that the very basic needs are there, right, let's call it survival, to make sure that they're met, you know, as immigrants, there's very little time for you to sit down with your children and teach them lessons or teach them capacities, right, because you're just like, they're working jobs or making sure like, they're so much of this as I'm speaking through it is like, it's incredible how much parents sacrifice their own mental health and their own personal growth for our, for their children and more so immigrants, right? Because they're just so collectively there. And one of the things that wasn't spoken about in my family or at least someone sat me down to structure it was personal finances, right? Yes, I was always taught about finances and how important they are and like pay your debts and don't owe money and things of that nature. Uh, but no one really sat down and said, hey, Alejandro, this is a checkbook. This is how you balance it. This is the importance of a checking account. This is what stocks are. This is what this is. This is what that is. And a lot of the time, what I kind of perceived was like, I just need to make sure that I get money and savings was a, was a, was a theory in my life. But anytime I tapped, I create a savings account for one reason or another, I ended up tapping into it because I couldn't make things work or, you know, things of that nature, just a bill came up and things um in that capacity so like I've always struggled with finances and ever since I was like 14 15 I had a difficult challenging time with it and 
it was me against money for a very long time. And there would be, there would be moments where I would get a lot of money and then it'll flee. Right. And there were moments where I'd be in zero or negative and I'd be super excited and be happy. Right. Like, like making things work and making things ends work. Um, and then student loans came in and that happened and the FAFSA came in and then, you know, when I got introduced to credit cards, I didn't really manage them really well. Like at 18, I think from 18 to now, I've had three credit cards where I've defaulted on uh, in my time period. Obviously not the, the proudest moments on it, but it's something that I want to speak to because it happens to everybody, right? And it's just about what you do in that regard afterwards. The first time it's okay. The second time's like, hey, the third time's like, yo, that's a habit, right? Like you got to check in with yourself on that front. And so in terms of that context of that money story, I, I found myself at 28 in, in a very challenging emotional and financial state. I, like I, two years prior, I had a beautiful exit to sell this company. We, I was able to pay off my student loans, which was really awesome, which was like first stress to get rid of, some credit card that got away. Um, but there was a moment in that, my life where I had some, um, some drama with a co-founder where I had to enlist attorneys and that really attorney bills to rack up really quickly. That was like about 40 K. And then, um, I owed my, my ex-girlfriend at the time really covered a lot of our expenses and really took care of us. And so that was like, Hey, I, I'll still take care of it. I'll still honor it. So that was like 30 K of like two years worth of expenses that she took care of on my behalf and it was really special. So I just want to say thank you to her because she really did step up and was able to, and then I had about another 20K that a friend did a personal loan to help me float. Um, and roughly about an extra, like, let's call it 10 or 15K with the credit card debt. And I remember being on a bench, um, I think it was 2018, beginning of 2008, the middle of, yeah, beginning of 2018, I was in Washington Square Park. I, I will never forget that moment. Um, on the north side of the park, there's these like hidden benches where I just sat there and I was, I was just really being incredibly powerfully and rawly honest with myself. And I said, holy shit, is it me? Am I cursed? Like, like, you know, money just comes in and out. Like, you know, they're like, I have, I have very little to show financially, like, Life-wise, I've lived. Friendship-wise, I have many. Family-wise, impact a full nine. But financially, I was like, it just wasn't a good relationship. It was really unhealthy. I didn't even have a healthy relationship with money. And I wrote a blog post about this. And I'm happy to send it to you so you guys can link it on the show notes. But I remember that moment that I took full responsibility because I had victimized myself. And that's the first thing I let every, every single one of my clients know. It's like the first thing that we have to do to address any topic is to remove yourself from what I like to call the drama triangle. And it's a really important framework because if, they're, if you're not familiar with it, it goes to show you that you have a victim, you have a hero, and you have a villain. But that create, those three dynamics create a lot of, um, I want to say, a lot of friction in your personal growth. So you have to actually divorce yourself from the framework itself like you can't go from victim to hero and be like oh i'm a, I'm a hero now like, i can't get it right same villain the same aspect so i recognized that i was victimizing myself and i you know i was like oh the world and my co-founder and this and i can't get a job and i was like what this is like I, you know that moment where you don't even realize you don't recognize that voice you're like Yo, that voice is not mine like i'm not i'm a problem solver like i'm resilient i've i'm gonna get through this i've done this before and i've <laughs> kind of um, what's the word i'm looking for hmm i've kind of like jiggled my way and by jiggling it's like not really my footing i bounced in and out of like good perspectives and i've always been really good at the macro like identifying macro trends like big shots big wins big exits really awesome but when it comes to the micromanagement or the micro that really adds up that has compounding effects wasn't really that great. So I took it in 2018, I took a, a very big commitment to myself. And I said, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about money. Everything, at least foundational, not finance, there's a difference, but money. There's a difference between the, the industry of finance and 
the relationship of money. So I really started understanding it from a historical standpoint. I looked at it from a history standpoint. How how do we think about trade and barter and like what what were some of the the things of like salt and how do they lose their values and things of that nature? And that's when you get into the strong economics and then you get into kind of like uh, you know the whole wealth of nations conversation about specialization and driving into those concepts. And I was like, okay, great. I'm now entered. I'm incredibly spiritual. I actually believe that all business and all life is spiritual. And bringing that into it, I realized that I needed to understand money from a somatic perspective. I needed to understand what money meant in terms of energy. And when we think about money, we call it currency. What currency are you going to pay me from? And I noticed that from the, reading the history of money that a lot of people traded on currency. Currency of this, currency of that, this currency, that currency. And I was like, hmm, currency is really an energy. It's like an energy form. It translates. There's value perspectives. And so I read this book called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. Um, I don't know if anybody's read it, but it's incredibly effective at driving where your money sourced from and how you spend it and what is really there. And like, it goes into some really deep narratives and dope, really dope stories about empowering people to take charge of their own lives and, and using money as a form of empowerment and appreciation versus a form of manipulation and coercion. So that was like the first step to really understand that. And then I put together a plan, a really, really strict plan to get out of debt. And then I led God. I really, really said, hey, I'm getting out of debt. What do I need to do? I communicated my needs. And then I landed a really great gig. I got in my way and I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get a job. I got to get out of my way. I got to get a job. I landed an amazing gig with an incredible team of founders. And I've explained myself very openly and honestly about where I was financially. And one of the co-founders was like, hey, you may, you may help us meet our financial and revenue needs. We'll help you take care of that. But like a, a significant chunk of that. And in six month period, I was able to meet those needs for them and be able to get those milestones. And so about 60K of my 100K was really done, taken care of. And so in that capacity, it's really what I want to teach people in that front of getting that 60K done is communicating where you're at. It's so critically important to the whole world, right? And being incredibly transparent, especially in new job interviews, new perspectives, and even potentially like to your own employer. Yeah, it may not be the most kosher conversation to tell your, your manager, hey, like I'm about to lose my house or hey, I'm struggling financially because my credit cards got out of hand. But when you get out of your own way and you speak your truth, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you. And, and the help may not look like a check or financials, but they'll give you an opportunity to earn. And that's really the thing that we I want to highlight here is that no one makes money. The only person that makes money is the minting press, right? It's literally the, for the like the, the U.S. Department of Treasury or the Treasury Departments across the world. They really are the ones that make money. Everybody else earns money. You earn money, right? And what what does earning mean? It means that it's the is the result of work put in. So when I started looking at instead of, I shifted my perspective from I need to make money to earn money. I started looking at myself as a, as a servant, as a person that's coming to serve. I'm here to provide a service. Am I the best person to provide the service? 100%, I'm world-class. I know exactly what I need to do. And so when I sat down with this founder and it was very honest, and trust me, that conversation was like really charged for me. There was a plan in place. And I was like, yes, I can execute that plan. And then the remainder, um, the remainder 40K in the 18 months was really putting together a payment plan with my ex-girlfriend. Um, it wasn't the healthiest conversation because she was an ex and, you know, we want to make sure, but it was important from an energetic standpoint for me to honor that relationship and say, hey, it's not really so much about you, but it's about the money. And I want to tell, I want to signal to currency that I am a great steward of it, whether it took me five years or 18 months, but I am a steward of it. And then really was about hunkering down and understanding and keeping things incredibly simple. Like, I'm not here to give you any advice that you haven't already read. It's just about keeping things simple, right? I reduced my, my expenses 5X. So I reduced everything 5X, the bare minimum. I was like, hey, this, this, and that. Number two, I set up a strict plan to move forward, set up budgets, started looking at accounting and certain things. 
I started doing Excel spreadsheets using uh, tools like Tiller and Mint and those resources that were available. And number three was really intentional about learning the game, the language of the game. When everything in life is a game, right? If you learn, if you master the language of the game, you can master any game. So I started understanding everything about it. Like I read Tony Robbins' Money Master the Game. I started looking into every single book about money, The Richest Man in Babylon. I started looking at frameworks and diversifications or meet Sith, like the, I'll teach you how to be rich. Like I just started navigating. I just saw congruencies and commonalities across the board. And it was just create systems and pay yourself first. And that really was really challenging for me because I would put others first. I would put, I would burn myself to keep others warm. And in that capacity, it was really a challenge and a great opportunity for me to prioritize myself emotionally. And I just want to tell people that like, when I spoke of my personal finances, I would shut down emotionally. I would freeze up. I, would, I could not even have the conversation. I'd walk away or even shut down. And so I recognized that that was an area of trauma for me. And I want to highlight that trauma is anything that overloads the nervous system, right? So when people say trauma is anything that overloads you. And for me, that was a really critical part of my life that overloaded me because I had this tension between me of wanting the best in life, but not wanting to put in the work. And the moment that I, I lined those two concepts, a lot of healing and a lot of processing started happening. That was, uh, that was epic. I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, you know, really appreciate the candor. I think you you hit the nail on the head on a couple different dimensions. Number one, for a lot of this stuff, I think communication is so, so important. You touched upon that, but if you're in a financial situation that you're not thrilled with, I think communicating with yourself first and foremost, having that sit down, that kind of come to Jesus moment, you know, whether you're at Washington Square Park or wherever you are about, hey, like how is the situation making me feel? Um, what do I want to change about the situation, uh, I think is critical. And then being able to communicate that with others as well, your closest friends, your family, I think making that communication such a key part of, of how you intend to get better, I think is really important, but understated. I think a lot of people try to take it on themselves and be like, oh, I have this, that, I'm not going to tell anybody about it, I'll figure it out. And if you don't have the healthiest relationship with money, it's almost like, trying to deal with trauma, like you said, without like professional help, right? Or without a therapist or without someone to kind of um, unwind to. And so I think making sure you have that, and I think communication is, is so important. The other thing I want to touch upon is this kind of, you mentioned knowing the language of the game, like playing this game, I, I think is, you know, I can't speak to that enough. I think understanding the, the right ways to think about money, understanding um, that, you know, it is something that if you want to get good at, you have to put in the work. You have to um, figure out the right ways to to, um, to model and to think. I think it's super, super important. So yeah, really appreciate that you sharing. I know for me, a lot of that connected. You know, I, I come from a similar background. My parents are from India, um, you know, s similar two-bedroom apartment with a, with a, you know, medium to big-sized family. And I think there's just not a not lot of uh, mindshare from an immigrant parent, which understandably so, like definitely not my parents or your parents' fault. You know, you're just hustling. You're trying to make you know your kid's life better. You don't have the time, or maybe even the 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 mindset needed to be like, hey, let's actually think about the right way to think about money. So appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Uh, so you know, you you talked about this kind of arc you had about really thinking about the right way to, to manage your money, you know, getting a job. I know right now you do coaching for, uh, for founders and for other, uh, you know, individuals. Was that an extension of the, of the job you got or how'd you get into that space? Which space specifically? Oh, the, the, the coaching space. Oh, the coaching space. Oh man, that's a really, really great. Thanks for highlighting that. Whew, the coaching space chose me. Um, one of the things that I've recognized is like I'm an incredible enabler of talent and I can identify talent, enable it, challenge it, bring it, mold it, help it. And I had just finished at this startup 
that I was burnt out of an incredibly toxic workplace. It was just really not a, any healthy place for me to be at. And two days before the pandemic, I quit without any job prospect, anything happening. And I just knew that it needed to happen. And so it was really in two weeks into the pandemic, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Am I going to consult? Am I going to do this? And then I had another come to Jesus moment where I sat down in deep prayer and I was asking God and like, Hey, what am I really good at? And when have I seen myself thrive at, in life? When do I feel the most high? When do I feel in flow? When do I feel super divine? When, when's full heart open? And it came about when it was like really personal and professional all had the elements of when I was guiding, supporting or elevating others, right? Like I, I helped the friend I helped a friend understand that he didn't need to be in law school. So he dropped out and ended up being a global policy leader in the space and versus in US-China relations, publishing books and things of that nature. He still comes back to me. He's like, hey, that day, that moment that helped shape that. Uh, when I was looking at the companies that I helped establish and build and, and take on for growth, I realized that it was when I was helping others within the company develop their skill sets where everybody with the whole company was winning was when I was nudging, guiding, molding, shaping, and introducing. And so I really had this aversion to the word coach. I felt it was less than, than entrepreneur, right? Entrepreneur founder has like its glitz and its glamour. So again, it was kind of the conversation with the ego that I was having there. Um, and even though I myself for four and a half, five years have had coaches of my own, personal coaches. And so I know the value that is in it is completely priceless of having a coach and I've been on the recipient end of that for so long that I it was really about time to, for me to um, have that conversation with myself and really came into me and it was like very crystal clear that my path was to be of service as a mentor as a guide and then I was like, well, what can I do for the world so that the world knows that this is, this is available? And the word coach really came to me in a vision very, very clearly, intuitively. And so within 24 hours, I signed up. I literally had like, I signed up for a course. I, I literally had like 6K in my savings account and the course was 5K and I just paid it. And mind you, I was still managing that. I was still managing things, but I, I invested in myself. And that was really the first moment where I really felt fully, fully aligned with everything that I'm doing. And it really lights me up fundamentally to help others prosper, specifically elite performers and startup founders, because there's so many issues and so many navigations that I don't want people to go through what I went through, right? So I want to turn my pain into my purpose, my, my mess into my message and help people understand that. I've been there before. I'm not just coaching from a place of like theory of like, Hey, this is really, I learned this in a book case, but rather like I went through some shit. I went through the deep, dark areas of life of overthinking, overanalyzing self doubt for granted, but still succeeding and not knowing how to create fulfillment in my life. And so then in that moment, about a year ago, over a year ago, I decided to make the leap and really be there to be of service to founders who are looking to change the world. That's amazing. What's something, so, you know, you talk about spending a lot of time with lead performers and startup founders. Is there a common thread of, you know, frustration or, or something that they want help with um, that you're able to kind of help with that you think is relatable that you can maybe broaden out for, you know, your average listener? That's an interesting question. Hmm. A common thread across... what's really beautiful about this one in particular is because i feel like this is really addressed to everybody is how much our childhood our unaddressed childhood issues continue to create a pattern in our lives and when we bring up a mirror to that inner child or that innocent child version of who we are we begin to really understand what change what's driving us what's what motivations are behind us what are the drivers or what are the social conditions that we've been implemented into and when we begin to understand where our behaviors stem from or where our patterns stem from then we can change them 
so many people and elite performers, this is what I've seen. They all have the recipe for achievement. They all know the science of achievement really well. One plus one equals two, two minus two equals zero. And we've been socially conditioned to believe in this ladder. If you do this today, you're going to get the job and then you get promoted. And after you get promoted, you'll get this and then you'll get that. And then you'll be able to get to the next thing. But no one really speaks to of like the why and the what is driving you that fulfilling. And people just immediately try to change things without understanding them. Right. And what I've noticed in my practice and in my research and the, the, the studies that I do is that the moment that elite performers understand a specific behavior in their lives, it changes automatically. You don't need to do anything. The moment you understand where it's sourced from, you understand what's driving it, what triggered it, what moved it, the brain is like, oh, I understand. I don't have to do that. Right. And a, a transformation begins in terms of identity and in terms of self authoring new habits and new behaviors. That, that's great. And I think a great um, lesson for, for people trying to think about where do some of these patterns come from? I know it's something that I've, you know, I, I've, I've recently began seeing a therapist and I think it's really fascinating to see how much these super tiny interactions you might've had with your parents or with a sibling can really like have pronounced and almost indelible impact on like the way you think about things. And when you start connecting those dots, you're like, oh, now, now I get why I think like that, or maybe why I behave like that, where it's, I think having, having that, uh, that connection is super powerful. So that's great. So I know uh, I wanted to jump around a little bit today, and I know I want to spend, I wanted to spend a little bit of time, maybe a lot of time on NFTs. I know it's a, a passion of yours. I know you've, uh, you've co-founded NFT Now and NFT DAO. So why don't we start here? Like, you know, your story necessarily, at least from like a, from a like a background perspective, like you're not a computer scientist, you're not like necessarily a crypto quote unquote person, but I think one of the creating the amazing things of crypto is that it's such an open landscape and invites everybody. Uh, I'm curious to know how you got into NFTs. It's a very specific thing to get into. And so maybe we'll start there. Yeah, that's a great question. So my journey in NFT starts actually back in uh, 2015, 2006. I don't want to say 2016, 2017. Um, I had already been in crypto for about two years. I bought my first Bitcoin uh, in 2014. And in 2016, I launched a creative agency called Odysseus, focused on emerging tech and storytelling. Our thesis and pretty much a lot of my thesis in my life is what people don't understand, they fear, and what they fear, they reject. Pretty simple. And so going back to my understanding, right, to my analogy of why I'm so keen to always understand um, was really important. I got to see the whole vision of the crypto space at a, at a big picture because I was helping some of the bigger names tell their stories or their narratives. And uh, a friend of mine, we were at, at a party and I'm being introduced to this guy, uh, Jesse. He's really amazing. Shout out to the Crypto Sherpa. He's like, hey, man, like you should really buy into this thing called ETH. I remember at the time it was like 3 or $4. And I was like, what is this, right? Like, no Ether? What is this? I don't know. It had just launched like a few years prior. And I literally moved into another room. And a different friend who has nothing to do with that other friend said to me, he's like, yo, you should buy into this, this Ether thing. And I was like, what? What is it? And the next day, I end up purchasing a sizable precision ether at $7. Um, one of our partners, one of our clients that we were helping them do stuff, um, they, do a, they were the launchers of this uh, conference called Ethereal, where all the ether-based platforms and all the people came on and chatted about the ecosystem and we were doing in terms of what on-chain was. And in one of their conferences, I remember they... They mentioned the word crypto punk and the word uh, crypto kitties. And at the time, I was just so focused on what the utility of the on-chain of blockchain was going to be for business and finance that I was so blinded to what was going to be the art. So my first interactions with NFTs, I did not see it. I was 
I, was, I wrote it off. Actually, I was like, oh, this is kind of dumb. This is who's going to see this. So I want to take full responsibility for that. And fast forward uh, of four years, five years, and my one of my buddies, now my co-founder, Matt, comes to Jackson Hole to visit me. And he's talking to me about NFTs. He's like, yo, listen, bro, there's this thing called NFTs. Like, you should really look into it. You know, a lot of people, it's picking up steam. Things are things that were selling for $10 six months ago, 12 months ago. They're now selling for $300, $500. And things that were selling for the low hundreds are now starting to pick up steam and selling for $1,000, $2,000. Like, you know, you're like, whoa, what is this? It's really interesting. And he's like, yeah, man, let's stay in touch about this topic. This is really awesome. And then the guy, Jesse, who introduced me to Ether, I reached out to him. I was like, hey, man, I'm really trying to get back into crypto. I really want to understand what's the best vehicle to do so right now that no one's really talking about. I really wanted to get into it because I recognized that the traditional finance world was stacked against me. No matter what I did, unless I played by their rules, there wasn't going to be generational wealth to be created. So my question was like, where do I generate new wealth, right? Not this old system is rigged completely. What, me going to stand up to, you know, the last 50 years of finance? No, it's not going to happen. So what I looked at, it's like, where do I have contacts? Where do I have research? Where can I do? Oh, crypto, this is really awesome. This is really healthy. So I started reaching back out to friends and saying, hey, guys, I'd like to get involved again. Like, what are some things? And a few friends were like, hey, this NFT thing is going to be very real. Pay attention to it. And actually, you're really good at it because you tell very, very great stories. And so I was like, cool. I left it in the back burner as a participant and started buying a few NFTs here and there. And then, I'll, but my roommate in Jackson Hole, Sam, one day he has this thing open. It's like NBA Top Shot on his counter. He's like, and he's like, yo, I'm buying collectibles, trading cards on on the internet. And I was like, yo, what is it? He's like, yo, this this thing's called NFTs, but for cards and like it's like collectible cards. And I was just like what what's going on here you know like so many different worlds are coming together and letting me know about this um and then february i came back from a honeymoon not from honeymoon from my anniversary in costa rica with my wife and this whole concept of starting to blow up again so i in january december january started buying a few things here and there holding and i started seeing names like traditionally like seeing the similar names across different boards different reddit different chat groups and so finally i was like yo i need to talk to these two guys who were really the first ones to tell me about nft so i called matt and he's like yeah man i started this this little instagram handle called nft now like this is it's starting to blow up it's i'm curating and i'm like yeah what are you thinking about doing with that he's like i don't know but it's got legs man it's got real legs and Matt is just so consumed in the, into the NFT world. He's getting to the right chats, getting to the right things. And he's just like this, anytime he talked about it, it was like expansive. And we're talking to each other about our artists and negotiating. And we're doing like, yo, you're going to buy this piece. And we're going to buy this piece. Are you going to buy this? And I started noticing, I looked at it from a macro perspective. And I was like, holy shit, this is going to be here to stay. This isn't a fad. This is, this is the second wave of NFTs. This is not the first wave. This is the second wave. And oh my God, this is also the first time where a digital technologies has not been implemented by the adult industry first. And I was like, wow. Oh my God. Holy shit. And this is empowering creators. And then I started looking at the narratives behind each of these people selling NFTs. And what really got me were like, statements such as like i can finally afford my 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 daughter's pre-k i'm able to pay my mom's rent for the next year hands-on fully or i'm able to get out of my own credit card and student loan debts so i started noticing that this nft thing wasn't just a crypto thing it was a very human thing it was very much about elevating and creating upward mobility for a lot of people and leveling the playing field in a community that felt that they were ostracized, felt that they were being suppressed. And in one moment or another, I, to be honest, I don't remember how I got engulfed, but all of a sudden I was in this flow, this conversation with Sam and Matt and my co-founders. And we were just like, yo, we should turn this into a digital media company. Like there's so many things broken with digital media. And that's my expertise. I came from a digital media. 
I was like, there's so many things broken and now we see the tools and I can start, I can, we can see, we started kind of mapping out like the vision of what it would look like and what a digital media company looks like that creates value, but also captures it. And we started just getting into the space and it just started flowing, just flowed. And I really remember that in that, in that period of time, it was really tension filled for me because I was like, well, what am I going to do with coaching and NFTs and the things that I wanted to do? And then I remembered this quote by Naval where he says, flow is always there. We're the ones that get in the way. So I got out of the way and I was like, you know what? If this is going to flow, let it flow. And um, started diving deeper and started connecting with people. And you just find this community that I had always dreamt of and always wanted to be part of that was both creative, tech-focused, tech-enabled, and really about helping each other out. And that's how I got involved into the the NFT community. I feel like the NFT community actually got me involved versus me myself getting involved. And one of those that one of the areas is that like when you let go and you let God, amazing things starts happening, but you got to show up consistently and show up your best. That's what what ended up happening. And I still to this day still am navigating a lot of the NFT world. What I'm really passionate about is DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. And that's where I want to see the world of NFTs and DAOs collide because they're so really powerful. Um, you know, I think what I, what I envision NFTs having an impact on, because right now we're still very early. Like if we were a baby where I, I feel like we're going from like being breastfed to formula, right? Like that's just like where we're at, right? We're, there's still a lot of dependencies. There's, we can't, we can barely crawl, let alone walk. Um, but what it does really surprise me and really see the future on is going to be how NFTs are going to be really the gateway for artists, first and foremost, to really create upward mobility and economic mobility upward, but also create that sustainability in terms of the secondary market sales. Because like if I buy, if you buy a piece of art today, the artist gets your initial price point. Let's say this can that I'm holding, um, I tell you, hey, this is art. I'll sell it to you for 50 bucks. You buy it for 50 bucks. And then all of a sudden you, the collector, know how to market it really well, right? You're like, hey, I'm going to make sure that this piece gets appreciated and value. And then all of a sudden it sells for $300,000. Me as the artist, I'm not going to see any portion of those $300,000, but I'm going to be really freaking upset. Like, yo, dude, like I created, you're getting the value out of it. Like that's really unfair. What NFTs does is like, even if I sold you that can for $50, if you sell it tomorrow for $300,000, the smart contract in which we implement or the actual, the algorithm that goes into it allows me to keep or retain 10% of that sale. So I'm going to be celebrating the secondary market, not just for reputation purposes, but for financial purposes as well. And then when driving into the beyond art, I see this as a great potential, as a great tool for property rights, selling, buying and selling a deed to your house, digital, who owns it, right? Titles of cars. Like I had an issue with my title with my car for registration in different states. And oh my God, what a freaking mess, right? Artists with recording rights, right? Image rights, anything that has to do with anything in terms of needing permission to place it or post it. Yeah, sure. You can, you can use that, but you have to go through my NFT. Buy a right to it do it, boom, if you actually end up getting it. So um, that's how I got involved and that's where I see the future of it. And it's just so exciting. What, I'm, what keeps me around is the people. And it's the, really the life-changing cues that I love to see and empowering creators to help bring NFTs to mainstream. That's really where I'm at. That's great. I'm curious, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about, you know, some of the use cases. I think there's so many great things you, you touched upon you know, secondary mar uh, markets and artists kind of keeping that royalty access. You've talked about different use cases, whether it's uh, property ownership or car ownership or other things. As you, you know, fast forward five years, what are the biggest headwinds with NFTs? What could go wrong? Ooh. So the one that I think we just have to call out is like, everything's going to go to zero, right? Like that's really the one big thing that people 
don't really speak about. And I think like what I would love to get your listeners on is to do a lot of research before buying your NFT and really understanding the lay of the land. And we're helping out with NFT now to help you understand that because there isn't, there isn't anything along the, the, the industry. It's incredibly IA fragmented or B just self-serving, right? There isn't like a location. So just a plug for NFT now, we're launching in August. There's going to be a lot of these how-to guides or how-to navigation uh, style. So that's really one. I want to say like that nine, the one thing ahead headwind is that like 98 to 99% of all these projects are going to be worthless. Like five years, six years from now. So like if you're buying art because you like the art, no, buy it because you like it, right? But if you're really looking to make a, re- like you're going to make investments and you're going to get returns, it's really going to be a numbers game, right? So really do that research. So one is that the headwind is that everything's going down to zero. I also think that like 98% of all projects are going to be going down to zero as well. Community management, support, things of that nature are going to be really powerful. I think really the navigation on a legal standpoint of how to navigate the real world from the on-chain world is going to be really important. You know, um, one of the things is that we don't really know how the SEC is looking at NFTs, how it's going to be taxed, how it isn't. What, what the difference between the IRS viewpoint of cryptocurrency is versus the SEC. SEC, I believe, thinks that it's a security that should be taxable anytime there's a movement, while the IRS thinks, I believe, I'm, and please don't quote me on this one fully, but I believe that the IRS sees it as property, right? And so there's these two convictions that are really challenging. So I think that that headwind of when the hammer actually comes down to that structure uh, you're going to see a lot of folks move to Puerto Rico, <laughs> uh, more so than you've seen now. Um, you know, another headwind, another headwind is just going to be scams that we have to address, like phishing, um, wallets being hacked and things of that nature, similar to what happened in web one, where we were like, your parents would be like, do not click an ad, no matter what happens. Don't remember when we were told growing up not to click ads. And now today we click ads incredibly comfortable. Similar things are going to start happening, right? Like people are coming out with Google advertisements that are phishing, that are phishing scams to get you to download. Right. And people are like actually sending artists their, um, their topics or things of that nature commission works and like, Hey, download this file so they can show you what I want commission. And they immediately hack into their MetaMask wallets and things of that nature. So I think those are the top three, um, more personal one. I think the last one is more one of how we're going to navigate and how self-regulating we're going to become and making sure that this, these things don't happen. And I think that it's going to be a really beautiful uh, evolution of the industry. But to, to highlight it, it's going to be one, everything going to zero, two, 97% of the, of the projects not really retain their value just because out of hype cycles, right? One thing can be hypeful for the next thing. And the crazy thing is like, some projects may go dormant for a year or two before they actually pick up like right crypto punks at the beginning of the pandemic were going for three, 400, 500 bucks. Pandemic comes in, it's just like sky rockets them. So that, and then seriously right now, the, all the phishing scams, I think that's a headwind that we're going to have to navigate really strongly. So interesting. Uh, that's, it's such an interesting space and, and, and I'd love to talk more about it, but I wanted to jump around. I want to jump to our last topic before kind of getting into towards the end of the episode, microdosing. It's kind of a, a throwaway in your profile. I've started to kind of hack around with my health with, I've been reading a lot of David Sinclair stuff on anti-aging and thinking mm-hmm. of the future of medicine. I've been fasting more, but what is microdosing for your average person? Even me, like what is microdosing? How do you use it? That's a really great question. So first and foremost, before I go into it, I am not a doctor in any way, <laughs> shape or form. This yeah. is not medical advice. And um, I just want to state that microdosing and psilocybin are still very much an illegal substance in the United States. So please do your own research. I'm only navigating this from a perspective that has benefited me. Uh, for me and I'm just sharing what has happened with me and for me with the world and just very much being an open experiment with that. So microdosing is the process of taking up like literally a micro dose of what would be traditionally a, a, a larger dose of a psychedelic, whether it is mushrooms, LSD, um, 
or MDMA, things of that nature, right? And I just want to highlight something that every day, millions of Americans take a psychedelic called caffeine. Caffeine is a psychedelic. It actually alters your perception, actually alters your human brain. That's really what the word means, altering your view or altering your perspective. And so for me, my, my, my microdosing journey began in the beginning of the pandemic when I wanted to feel safe and get out of survival. And so I created a an experiment of 90 days to really hunker down and generate new brain cells and new brain connections. So neurogenesis and neuroplasticity were really key for me to really, quote unquote, hack or program my brain to start fundamentally operating from the root system from a place of feeling safe. And I did a microdosing regimen and, and the 90 days actually turned out to be 32. It was incredibly powerful. I'm happy to send you the link for the blog on that post on it. But microdosing is taking a non-psychoactive, a non-psychoactive dose of what would either be a psychoactive dose of a mushroom or LSD or MDMA. And for me, it's mushroom psilocybin and really allowing me to navigate better my emotions, my, my depressions or my anxieties and things of that capacity. And what microdosing does in a really powerful way, it's not what you feel, but it's really what you don't feel. A lot of folks, when they take a cup of coffee or they take their Adderall or like, oh, I feel more focused or I feel more of this or I feel more, right? People I'd want to speak to the additives of what it brings to you. What I love speaking to about microdosing is the, the, the subtractive, the deductive aspect of what it does for you. So for me in particular, it helps me reduce my overthinking, my overanalyzing, and really getting in, being in my head. It brings me back to my body, brings me back to the present moment, really fully be able to navigate what would be hyper-stressful situations with a buffer. I call it like the, the, the semi-buffer of being able to respond versus react, right? So a reaction is here, a response, there's a space, and that space is processing, right? Um, and I really love microdosing because there's not enough studies on it yet, right? What we do have in terms of our culture right now is a lot of the John Hopkins and Imperial College research as to these big journeys in the scientific or academic settings or the, the more, more grand dosage basis, right? Three grams, two grams on a consistent single dose uh, journeys or end of life journeys where the cancer patients get, you know, a single dose or addiction uh, prescribed uh, dosages, which are like very big journeys. What I'm really passionate about is, again, the microdosing aspect. And so one of those things that came from it is helping to navigate individuals who are going through the journey themselves. Um, in no way, shape, or form do I provide any, any supplements or any capacity. I think nature provides on that front. And so what, what I really focus on is making sure that there is a scientific process in place with a spiritual approach. Because so much of this is emotional, so much of this is very spiritual, and I created a, a microdosing journal that helps you track these really, really powerfully. Um, I also host, I'm going to revamp this fall, I also am the host of Mushroom 101, which is an introductory uh, lesson on how to navigate the world of mushroom. Again, incredibly fragmented, incredibly everywhere, and if you don't know the language of the lingo, it could be overwhelming and, and downright scary. Because mushrooms are really, there's a quote that I love about mushrooms and they says, every mushroom is edible at least once, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lack of education. There's a lack of resources. There's a lack of platforms and educators that I feel in this time are coming up, right? We're all coming out of our psychedelic closets. We're coming out and saying, hey, this has actually been helpful for me being a microdosing advocate, a mushroom advocate, not just psychedelics, but also like, for example, I'm, I love cordyceps for energy management. I love reishi for inflammation. I love turkey tail for my immunity. I love, you know, shiitake for flavor. Like there's different health benefits with different mushrooms that we dive into. Um, but coming out of the psychedelic closet is something that we're starting to see a lot more high performers, elite performers, and a lot more people who are quote unquote, having them having it together and actually like saying, Hey, actually 
what was really helpful was microdosing. Right. And we see that like right in David Letterman Netflix show, he's with the celebrity who plays the flute. I forget her name, but she's like, yeah, what's helped me through this transition has been I take a little mushroom cap from time to time. Right. And then you see um, other celebrities coming out saying, hey, during my depression, I actually did microdosing. It was really super helpful. Or I did a, I did a journey and it put things into perspective or I did a deeper uh, journey that was safe in place and setting and guidance. And so I'm really excited for A, the decriminalization and then B, the legalization of the mushroom from a recreational standpoint, because really what I'm firm believing in, it's a model that I'm gonna be developing and working on is spiritual experiences can be there, it can be transformational. Recreational experiences can be transformational and then therapeutic experiences can be transformational, but we don't speak to them in that capacity. Right. So bringing the transformation conversation around all three is something that I'm passionate about. That's amazing. I wanted to end here. Um, you've been so gracious with your time. What is the best piece of investing advice that you've received in your life or maybe that you've uh, absorbed from from others? Yeah, so there's I think this is threefold. Um, this is a really beautiful one. One. Be honest with yourself like where you're at today, not where you want to be. Oh, but I'm working on, no, where you're at today. If you're broke today, say I am broke, right? Because broke can be fixed, right? Or I'm in debt can be fixed, right? Like your mentality can't, if you're in denial with what's going on, if you're resisting it, you can't really do it. So that's really understanding where you're at and being honest with yourself. Number two is learn, learn the language to master the game. Right. That, that really came to me and was really powerful. And the moment I started reading about money, reading about finances, reading about things, I started understanding the elements that were for me, against me. Right. Like in six months, I went from a 518 credit score to a 750 because I learned the game. I literally knew what it was that I needed to navigate. So really learning the language of the game helped me master it. And really, the third one is modeling and modeling the behaviors of the people that you are impressed by, right? The people of the lifestyle that you wanna live in. Um, for me, it's really about knowing who it was and say, hey, how'd you get there? Or what did you do? Like, right, reaching out to people or reading interviews and profiles, you'd be surprised how many people actually give you their secret sauce. That's amazing. And, you know, thank you so much for being on. I The, the thing I love about you the most, I know we're just getting to know each other is like, I kind of view you as like, this is gonna sound corny, but like as a modern man, in the sense that your interests are so varied, but they're all on things and trends. You talked about yourself being awesome at the macro level. You crypto, you have kind of, let's just call it new age health. Um, you have different ways to think about money um, and a lot more stuff that we didn't even get into, coaching, spiritual journey. So I think um, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot and thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it.